0: Say it with me folks, the Lord is good good. and His his mercy endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. We want to continue with the series that we've been teaching for the last several weeks, Healing Belongs to Us. And we want to start in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16 this morning. Speaking of Jesus, it says, When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses now folks Matthew is identifying what was taking place or what had taken place in Jesus' ministry on this particular day or time that he's referring to and he says the fulfill, that the, the actions that took place were the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. In fact, he's identifying the healing of all that were sick as being the condition that satisfies Isaiah's prophecy. Now, if you look in back to Isaiah, what he's referring to, what he's talking about, was what is described in Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 3, it says, He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, these two words, sorrows and griefs, are translated other things in the Old Testament. The word sorrows is translated pains, and the word grief is translated sickness in other places. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of pains and acquainted with sickness and we hid as it were our faces from him he was despised and we esteemed him not now look at verse 4 surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows this is what isaiah uh, this is what matthew is quoting in matthew chapter 8 verse 17 surely he has borne our griefs our sickness and carried our sorrows or pains Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now, folks, the, uh, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah is known universally as the Messianic chapter. It gives us a, a description of the things that Jesus bought for us through the shedding of his blood. And it's not really a very long chapter. I think it's, what, 12 verses or so. But in this messianic chapter, one of the most important truths in all of the scripture about what Jesus redeemed us from and the price that he paid for our redemption, there's only one one time this word surely is used in this 53rd chapter, and he uses it concerning sickness and disease. Surely he has borne our pains. And carried our sicknesses. Surely he has done so. Now folks. I would submit to you. That the modern day church. Puts the emphasis on Jesus. Paying the price for our sins. Much more. Than the price that he paid. For sickness and disease. Yet Isaiah. Being moved by the Holy Ghost. It's almost as if the Holy Ghost. Knew it would be a controversy said, surely, surely, without a shadow of a doubt, truly, certainly, he has borne our sickness and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him smitten, str- uh, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now the same verse of Scripture that talks about Jesus paying the price for sin says Jesus paid the price for sickness and disease. He also paid the price for our provision. This word peace is the word shalom. It's translated prosperity in a couple of other places in the Old Testament. And of all the things that the Bible tells us that Jesus paid the price for, again, he identifies Sickness and disease, as surely Jesus has, has paid that price for us. Now, these words, born and carried, are Levitical words. They're Levitical terms. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. This word is used, this word bear or born is used in many places in the Old Testament. I want to read to you from Leviticus, chapter 16, verse 21. The chapter, uh, this is the 16th chapter of Leviticus is talking about the Day of Atonement and the things that were to be done on the Day of Atonement. Verse 21, And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear. This word bear is the same word that's used in Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pain. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities into a land not inhabited, and he shall let go of the goat in the wilderness. Now, folks, if there's anybody on the planet that knew at the time that Jesus came to the earth to fulfill his earthly ministry. If there's anybody on the planet that had experience and an example of the substitutionary work of the Messiah, it would have to be the people that Jesus ministered to. Paul gives us a glimpse, talking to us particularly when he wrote to the Corinthians, the Corinthians. He gave us a glimpse by calling it the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation means mutual exchange. In other words, Paul, through the example of the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement being a great part of that example, Paul tells us that there was a mutual exchange or a substitutionary work that Jesus performed on our behalf. So when Isaiah tells the children of Israel by the working of the Holy Ghost, when he tells Israel about what the work that Jesus did, he's speaking very specifically. And a very specific part of that sacrifice Jesus made was to perform the actions of the scapegoat where all the sins of Israel were placed upon him, and he bore them away. Now the word bore, born or bear, means to carry away to a, large, uh, uh, to a faraway place. The word carried has more to do with the burden, and the word born has more to do with the action that Jesus undertook for us and on our behalf. Surely he has borne our griefs, our sickness. And carried our pains; yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and have turned every one to his own way; and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted; yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. And he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. That phrase, for he was cut off out of the land of the living, is very similar to the description in Leviticus chapter 16 of the scapegoat. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. This word death in the original Hebrew is in the plural. In other words, Jesus died more than one death. He died physically, of course, we know that. But the greatest part of the penalty and the punishment he endured was due to the fact that he died spiritually. He was separated and estranged from God to perform the work that God had for us. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death's Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Notice this phrase, he has put him to grief." Some of the Orthodox Jewish translations of this literally say, he made him sick. It's talking again about the substitutionary work of Jesus on our behalf. Now that doesn't mean that God gave him cancer. Doesn't mean that he had leukemia on the cross. But it means that he paid the price. He suffered the punishment for sickness and disease just as truly and just as surely as he paid the price for sins and iniquities. Now, folks, God takes all this and presents this and tells us by the Holy Ghost in a very simple format. He doesn't make a distinction other than for definition's sake of the price that Jesus paid for sins and the substitutionary price that Jesus paid for sickness and disease. Now, the church picks them apart. The the church uses this almost like there's a buffet line at a cafeteria. Jesus paid for sins and iniquities. Nobody doubts that. Nobody preaches against it. So he paid the price for sins and iniquities. But he also paid the price for poverty and for sickness and disease. Now the reason that God looks at it differently than the church does, and by the church I'm not talking about everybody and I certainly wouldn't expect you to. But the vast majority of the church world looks at the price that Jesus paid for sins and iniquities as a different price than what he would have paid for sickness and disease. But God literally made him sick. Now why did God make him sick? To bear the iniquities and the sickness of us all. Brother Hagin used to tell a story of an article that he read in the paper about something that happened during World War II. During this particular time, London, England was undergoing nightly bombings by the German Air Force. And during the time that this occurred, the air raid sirens would ring out through the city And people would leave their homes and rush to the bomb shelters that had been constructed and and set up. And there was a certain lady, an older lady, that missed being at the bomb shelters. And, And you would well understand that every night it's pretty much the same people that you're seeing and meeting with at these local bomb shelters as they were set up. And so three days went by or three nights went by and they hadn't seen anything of this lady nobody had seen her during the daytime as people were outside in the streets trying to clean up the debris from the bombings and such but after the third night somebody saw her on the fourth day out and about in the in the streets and so they said to her well we're glad to see you back and she said back i didn't go anywhere and so she was questioned by this individual that knew her Well, where are you? What are you doing during the bomb, the air raids? We haven't seen you at the bomb shelter. Some people had surmised that she had been killed by the bombings. Other people had thought maybe she had moved out into the country to escape the air raids. But she said, No, I haven't gone anywhere. I've been staying here in my own home. And they said, well, what are you doing? Aren't you afraid? And she said, no. I was reading in the Bible where it said God neither slumbers nor sleeps. And I decided there's no reason in both of us staying (laughs) awake. Folks, when Jesus bore our sins, he took them away from us. When he bore our iniquities, he took them away from us. When he bore our sickness and disease, he took them away from us. When he bore our poverty, he took it away from us. God made him sick. God made him to be sick. Now, folks, if that was preached with the same certainty that the church preaches that Jesus died for our sins then receiving healing from sickness and disease would be a commonplace event. It would be just as easy, it would be just as simple, it would be just as common for sickness and disease to be healed and people to be healed from sickness and disease as it is for our sins to be forgiven. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto, unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now I want to remind you also at the beginning of this, verse, of this chapter, in verse 1, it starts this way, who has believed thy report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Even Isaiah identified that faith in what Jesus has done is necessary to bring about the, the healing result. That we desire. We know in Jesus' ministry. Turn with me in fact to Luke chapter 4. It tells us that Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. Went to his own hometown of Nazareth. It wasn't the first place where he started his ministry. His earthly ministry. But it was early on. In The chronological aspect of his ministry. Now we know this uh, ministry in Damascus is given to us or explained to us in three of the gospels. Matthew 13, Mark 6, and Luke 4 are all talking about the same time when he was ministering in Nazareth. Now Nazareth was the city in which he was brought up as a child and so the people in Nazareth would know him and did know him. It was a small town atmosphere. Everybody knew everybody so to speak. And so they were aware of Jesus. And the life that he lived. Among them. But it tells us in Matthew chapter 13. And Mark chapter 6. That he was unable to do any healing miracles. Mark 6.5 says it this way. And he could there do no mighty work. Save that he laid his hands upon a few sick. Or sickly people. People with minor ailments. And got them healed. And he marveled at their unbelief. And he went about their cities and villages teaching. So we see that Jesus, the one who paid the price for us, that we might be born again and made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, Jesus was hindered. He had the Spirit without measure, which means he had all of the operations of the Holy Ghost on him that there was. But Jesus, even so greatly anointed in the manner in which it describes, he was unable to overcome the unbelief of the city. The Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So he tried to counteract that, their unbelief, by teaching. But his first time in the city of Nazareth was a complete ministry flop. The fact that it says he could there do no mighty work, indicates that he tried and failed. And some translations point that out. But notice in Luke chapter 4, it tells us, gives us some gr- much greater degree of, of insight into what Jesus taught and what took place in Nazareth that kept him from being able to do any healings or mighty works. In Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, here's what he preached. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now that's Isaiah chapter 61, the first several verses of the chapter. And then he identifies why he spoke those words. Words are why he found those scriptures to speak to them. He closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And all the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he said, this is talking about me. We don't have any example in, in the scripture that gives us greater insight or a greater look into the fact that Jesus identified and tells the people of Nazareth that he's the anointed one, the Messiah of of whom these scriptures speak. That didn't go over very well with them. They got mad and tried to kill him, tried to throw him off the brow of the hill that the city is built on. But let's see a little bit further in Luke's writings how that came about. Verse 22, And all bear him witness, and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Now, folks, they recognized Jesus was teaching them or speaking to them in a much different way than they have ever heard anybody speak to them. They recognized that they were gracious words. In other words, there was an anointing on what he was speaking And the information that he shared with them that was unlike anything that they'd ever experienced in their lifetime. And so they wondered how this guy that they'd grown up with had this truth and was proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. The fact that they said, is this not Joseph's son? That was the first question. The concept of the virgin birth regarding the Messiah was well known. It wasn't a hidden fact. It was something that people were well accustomed to seeing the sign or as the sign to know who the Messiah would be. Now if you lived in those days and you were of the common people, you would have heard several times throughout your lifetime the different prophecies that spoke to the Messiah's coming. And they seem to indicate that what they know or what they thought they knew about Joseph being his father would disqualify Jesus from being the Messiah. But they didn't know that Jesus was born of a virgin who was overshadowed by the Holy Ghost. And that's how his life came into existence. You could well understand that Mary would not be too keen on talking about the details of the angel that told her about Jesus being born of her. It wasn't like there were claims made throughout Jesus' life that his miracle ministry would then prove this was a closely held secret in his family not sure about his brothers and sisters don't know if Mary told them anything about what had happened but at least it seems clear clear to me at least that this was not common knowledge that the details of his birth were not common knowledge in the city So Jesus said unto them, You surely will say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none none of them was Elijah sent Save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And they all, and all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. So what Jesus said to them is what got them so mad that they wanted to kill him. And it's apparently made an attempt on his life. You know the stories that he's referring to, how that the widow woman that Elijah was sent to had the barrel of meal and the crews of oil that didn't run out. You know also the story of Naaman the Syrian, the Syrian captain that had leprosy, and was healed by finally going to Elijah, or Elisha. I'm sorry. Going to where Elisha was, being treated in a far different way that he was used to being treated. But finally, he obeyed what. Elisha told him to do, go wash in the river Jordan seven times and your leprosy will be cleansed. And it happened, it turned out just exactly the way that Elisha said. But Jesus makes the comparison or gives the instruction of those two examples. Neither one of those people were Jews upon which that, that happened. The widow woman that sustained Elijah was of the city of Sarepta, outside of the Jewish boundaries. Naaman was the Syrian captain, captain of the guard. And Jesus is very simply saying that the things, the supernatural things that occurred, were not because these people were Jews. In Matthew chapter 8, in the beginning of the chapter, it tells us about the centurion that comes to Jesus because his servant is lying at home sick of the palsy. And when Jesus hears of that, he says, I'll come to your house and heal your servant. But the centurion says, there's no reason for you to come to my house. Just speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Because I know how authority works. I tell those that are under my authority to come or to go or to perform some service. And they obey what he says. So he says to Jesus, speak the word only and my servant will be healed. He knows that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. Now there's nothing that would identify that as having a basis for his faith. If Jesus had not cured the sick and healed the sick. And performed other mighty healing works. Jesus is trying to identify to the people of Nazareth that faith is necessary. One thing that's very common among people that are afflicted with sickness and disease and finally hear about God's healing mercy or heal. hear at least that we're teaching God's healing power and his willingness to heal A lot of times, probably most times, people are seeking some way to be healed other than what God has ordained and identified. In Psalm 107, verse 20, it says he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Most people I know, most Christians I know, are looking for God to do some special work to bring about their healing rather than to take the word of God at face value, stand on the word and receive their own healing in that manner. That's what Jesus is bringing out. And that's what makes the the Jews in Nazareth so angry with him. We see a lot of things in the Old Testament things that paul says to the corinthians in 1 corinthians 10 that are examples for us so that we can see the mercy of god and the willingness of god to help his people and so forth but we normally see these examples as pertain to israel at large for example we talk a lot about numbers chapter 13 where the 12 spies go to spy out the land of Israel, or the Canaan land, sorry, that which becomes the land of Israel later on. We see what happens when the children of Israel murmur and the plagues that uh, beset them because of their unbelief. But Jesus is very simply telling the people in Nazareth that there was not one leper during the time of Elijah I'm sorry during the time of Elisha that was healed he says there was not one widow during the time of Elijah that God's provision promise of provision was bestowed upon now folks again the Bible says in Romans ten seventeen, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Israel had a promise. They had a covenant promise from God. Let me read it to you. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 7. In verse 12, it says, Wherefore it shall come to pass, if you hearken to these judgments and do them, That the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he swear unto thy fathers. And he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of thy womb and the fruit of thy land. Thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. And the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep in the land which he swear unto thy fathers to give thee. Thou shalt be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will take away from thee all sickness. All sickness. And will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou know upon thee, but will lay them upon all them that hate thee. Folks, this encapsulates these few verses, identify the covenant promise that God has made to his people. That means if his people collectively... Which we see in a couple of examples, like Second Corinthians or Second Chronicles, chapter twenty, for example, when Jehoshaphat was king of Israel or king of Judah. He's beset upon by five enemy armies, but he gathers the people together and proclaims the fast and prays before the tabernacle, and God brings great deliverance to them. And so we see that there are occasions which Israel as a whole or as a nation put a demand on God's covenant promise. But if God's covenant promise, these verses that we just read, which include taking away from the all sickness and all disease, if these promises belong to Israel as a nation, then they belong to every child of Abraham individually too. We don't have any examples in the Old Testament of Israel or the people of Israel or any child of Abraham appropriating those promises for themselves. That's why when Jesus finds faith, what he calls great faith out of the centurion, he marvels at his great faith. The Bible tells us about the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was at home sick, grievously sick. She came to where Jesus was and tries to put a stake a claim to healing. Now, she's outside of the children of Israel. She's not a daughter of Abraham. She's not of the lineage of Abraham or his family. But because she will not allow any obstacle or any hindrance to keep her from taking hold of the, the healing promise and the covenant God made with Abraham. He identifies her faith as great faith too. We know of the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5 that comes in the fresh behind and touches Jesus' garment. For she said, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. She placed a demand on the power, the healing power, that Jesus had and operated in. But even that is not associated with the Old Testament promise, a covenant blessing of being free from sickness and disease. When Jesus tells the people at Nazareth that the only people that were healed or provided for during the times of Elisha and Elijah... He's identifying that there's not one person in the land of Israel that had made a demand on the healing promise of God. He sent his word and healed them. Folks, healing's in the word. Healing is a blessing, an eternal blessing. That belongs to the children of Abraham. Now Galatians chapter 3 identifies who that is. Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 says, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Well, what promise? One of the things that Jesus paid a substitutionary price for us is not only freedom, redemption, from sin, and sickness, uh, from sin, but also from sickness as well. Jesus marveled at these people outside of Israel that demonstrated great faith. They refused to be talked out of what God had said in his word belongs to them. Now here's the question I have for you. How did Israel know, whether individually or corporately, how did the people of Israel know how to make a demand on the covenant promise? We know in chapter 14 of Numbers, after the ten spies rebelled against God, God identifies his eternal Law through the characteristics of his own life. Numbers 14, verse 21, I believe it is. God told Moses, Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. Now, folks, that implies that Israel knew that the way to exercise authority the way to take hold of the covenant promises of God to be free from sickness and disease is through the words that we speak. How did they know that? The Bible talks a lot about, and God says to and through Moses numerous times, if you keep my commandments, if you walk in my statutes, But that doesn't specifically identify the power of your words. We see things through the writings in the Psalms and the Proverbs concerning David particularly that he understood that it's by the spoken word that we take hold of God's promise. But how did he find out? The first time that we have any indication whatsoever of the importance of confession is when Joshua takes over the children of Israel and God speaks to him and gives him the means or the pattern whereby he will lead the children of Israel into the promised land. This book of the law, Joshua 1 verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do all the things that are written therein, And then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Folks, that's the first time we can find where the Bible really identifies, specifically identifies, that it's through your words that you take hold of or reject God's covenant promises. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. We'll start in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by its fruit. O generation of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Now let's stop there for just a minute and consider what he's saying. Out of the abundance of the heart, the heart's referring to the spirit of man the innermost being. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, spiritual authority is exercised through the words that we speak. Jesus certainly understood that. Jesus has lived according to the promise of God. All is time here on the earth there's a story that I overlooked for years and years about Jesus in the wedding feast of Cana I always looked at that as being kind of a minor miracle if there is such a thing and didn't really see the importance of what it's telling us about Jesus Jesus lived a a sinless life here on the earth. He lived a sinless life before he was anointed of the Holy Ghost when he was baptized in the River Jordan. He lived a sinless life before the power of God came upon him in great measure. You remember the story of the wedding feast at Cana, where it must have been some kind of relative of Jesus' family for his mother to have something to do with the setting forth of the wine and the refreshments and all that kind of stuff, she comes to Jesus and says, we're out of wine. And Jesus says, what have I to do with that? In other words, it it indicates that Jesus did not know that that was going to be his first miracle until after the fact when God apparently speaks to him and gives him instruction. He seems to rebuff his mom. and we've all had situations with our mothers I guess where moms tried to push us in a way she thought we should go but Jesus wasn't allowed he didn't allow his mother or anybody else to direct direct his ministry rather than the Holy Ghost so his mother after being rebuffed turns to the servants and says whatever he tells you do it now why in the world Would she respond in that way? If she had not been accustomed to seeing his words come to pass, why in the world would she identify the importance of of his words to the servants? Now folks, Jesus has just been baptized by John in the Jordan River. What took place after that was that he, was, he went into the wilderness and he fasted. He met the devil and overcame the temptations that the devil presented to him. And he returned, the Bible says, in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. And then the very next thing that happens is that he goes to this wedding feast in Cana. So whatever caused his mother to To identify the importance of the words that Jesus speaks. Her experience has been with him as been before he was anointed of the Holy Ghost and the power of God. Jesus has been living according to the words that he speaks to provide for his family as the oldest son when Joseph goes off the scene. We don't know when that is. We don't know how that took place. But I can't come up with any other example or any other answer other than Jesus has operated in such a way that his mother recognizes that whatever he says comes to pass. If there's some other explanation for that or some other answer, I'd be perfectly glad for you to tell me what that is. But Jesus, being a covenant man, subject to the the law of Moses, recognizes and lives accordingly to the importance of his words. Verse 34 again, O generation of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Now folks, that's talking about not only good or evil things, that words that come out of their mouths. But he's talking about the receiving of something based on what they've said. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment for by thy words thou shalt be justified and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. That's not a scripture that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. Jesus is very simply identifying Here's how the exercise of authority is taking place. Or here's how the exercise of authority is made. Now, this truth is established in many ways, or in many different scriptures in the New Testament. For example, Mark chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus talking about faith. It says, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. Remember, we just read that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Doesn't say he'll have whatsoever he thinketh. It says he'll have whatsoever he saith. When did Jesus come to understand this? Was this something he just came to the realization of just before he went to the cross? Or did Jesus know this even before he was baptized by John in the Jordan River and the power of the Holy Ghost came upon him? The wedding experience in Cana of Galilee Would indicate that he's known this and lived this throughout his life. Very simply put folks. The word of God in your mouth is the most important thing. That you can commit yourself to. James talks about some things. James, The book of James was written by Jesus' half-brother who didn't believe on him when he was here on the earth. But historical documents indicate to us that Jesus appeared to his brother, his half-brother, after his resurrection. And James then became the pastor of the church at Jerusalem after several years. We see by Acts 15 that he's in a position of making the decision of what rules and regulations should be imposed upon the Gentiles in faraway lands and cities that Paul and others went to minister to. He says this, he says that if a person seems to be religious but doesn't bridle his tongue, his religion is in vain. And then also he tells us in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. This phrase, be not many masters, is talking about don't be desirous of a, a, a position where you tell people what to do. Folks, it's amazing how many people know how to do my job. Now, if you're a lawyer, nobody comes to tell you how to practice law. If you're a mechanic, nobody tries to tell you how to fix an engine. But if you're a pastor, everybody knows how to do that. but there's a price you pay for doing that you receive greater condemnation or a higher standard in other words to live by verse 2 for in many things we offend all if any man offend not in word the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body behold we put bits in the horses mouths that they may obey us and we turn about their whole body Behold also the ships which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. Every great fire starts off with a spark. He's talking about the sparks that your tongue can cause to fly and the tongue is a fire a world of iniquity so is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell for every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of the things of the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind but the tongue can no man tame it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison Now, folks, that's not the way God created the tongue to work. And I think we have to ask ourselves this very serious question. And that is simply this. Is James talking about people outside the church or inside the church? Folks, I believe the answer is both. He's saying to anyone and everyone that would, would not or has not renewed their mind to the truth. Then these same wicked and evil responses and works that take place among the unsaved will work just the same way inside the church. That's why it's so important for us to renew our mind to the word. Now, that's what God's giving Joshua instruction to do in Joshua 1.8. Paul calls it in Romans chapter 12, the renewing of the mind. How do you renew your mind? Well, just like God told Joshua, this book of the law or this word of God shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. In other words, folks, the only way, the only hope you have, any of us have, to overcome the evil of the tongue is to speak the word of God consistently, not let the word of God depart from your mouth. Now, once you speak, those words, whatever they were, whether they're good words or bad words, have departed from your mouth. So how do you keep them from departing from your mouth? You keep saying it. Over and 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 over again. I think this is one of the great misunderstandings or something that is overlooked about the fall of Adam and Eve. Prior to their sin... because they were made in the image and likeness of God every word they spoke was from their heart from the knowledge that God brought to them but when they fell they lost control of their tongue now their tongue is influenced by the physical realm the circumstances in which they find themselves That was never the case before the fall. I found that if you keep the word of God in your mouth, if you commit yourself to speak the word and only the word, that'll keep you out of a lot of trouble. Now, folks, I grew up in the Baptist church. I was saved when I was six years old. And after a number of years, during my teenage years, I wound up being part of an Assembly of God church, a big Assembly of God church that was in our area. And I can honestly tell you that out of both churches, the hundreds of times maybe thousands of times that I was in church services at either of those places, both of those places really, I never heard one word said about the importance of your confession. The closest that I came to it I guess I heard sometimes in both of those churches the word of salvation or the word, of, the word about confession regarding salvation. But even then, their position was that the confession of your sin is what we should give ourselves to in order to come into the family of God. I spent my childhood. And certainly my teen years, participating in and being committed to churches that were very successful in bringing people into salvation. But it was only in my 20s from a man named Kenneth Hagin. that I found the importance of words in the manner in which we teach them and what we've seen in the scripture this morning. God gave us the greatest source of power in the universe, which is his word. And the church, by and large, doesn't know how to apply it to either set up a defense against the work of Satan, against us. Or maybe more importantly, to exercise our faith and our authority to change things in our lives. Jesus is teaching in his earthly ministry about the importance of the things that we speak and it was just such a foreign concept to the people that heard him when he was here on the earth as it seems to be the people now remember Isaiah 53 verse 1 who shall believe our report who shall believe our report the 53rd chapter of Isaiah gives us a detailed list of the substitutionary work that Jesus performs on our behalf. But even though he did pay the price being wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Even though Jesus did pay the price for sickness, poverty, and sin, There's so many people, just like there were in Nazareth, that fail to recognize the importance of our faith to take hold of God's purchased blessings. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let me close with this, folks. Jeremiah chapter 33. I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in the inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. He's talking about the new covenant. Here's what he wants from you and and me, from all of us, regarding this new covenant. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. Folks, how does God put his word on the inside of you? How does he write his word in your heart? He can't do it unless you meditate in his word. He can't do it unless we follow the instruction given to us by Joshua, or given to Joshua by the Holy Ghost. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein. Meditate means to mutter, M-U-T-T-E-R, to say to yourself over and over and over again, that which the Bible declares to be the truth, when Jesus was tempted of the devil after he was baptized by John in the Jordan River each time the temptation came to him he said it is written if Jesus used the word of God as a defense against Satan then how much more important is it for us to do the same verse 34 and they shall teach no more Every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's what God wants out of us for the new covenant, where his law is written in our hearts. It's not just on the pages of the Bible that we have in our house by the bedside hopefully not gathering dust. But that's what he's looking for from us. Where we exercise our spiritual authority by the words that we speak to have the word written on our hearts, ever present, ever ready from the inside of us, from our spirits within so that we might know him And not have to be taught by anybody else. But know him. And that's what he calls being our God and us being his people. Your words are everything. Your words are the only thing. Your words set the course of your life. Your words determine... What are the blessings of God that Jesus paid for that we will enjoy and walk in? Your words are everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this holy written word. We thank you, Father, for the provision that you made for us. You redeemed us from spiritual death. You redeemed us from poverty. You redeemed us from sickness and disease. Father, we recognize that your word is the power of God unto salvation, or in other words, unto everything that Jesus paid the price for us. Father, what a blessing it is that we might be able to say that we have found your word They are life unto us. Father, you know the times that we live in. You know the work of the enemy, the evil one, and how he would try to shake us loose, to isolate us, that we might fail to walk in. the truth that you've given us. But Father, we're not ignorant of the Satan's devices. We know how he uses slander and doubt and deceitfulness against each and every one of us. Father, we take sides with you. If the whole world stands on one side and says your word's not true, we'll stand on the other side and say that it is. Quicken us, Father. Quicken the words that we speak, your words in our mouths. Quicken us that we might know your will and walk in it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Let's all stand. Say it with me one more time, please. For the Lord is good, and His mercy endures forever. Say this, I attend unto God's words. I incline my ear to its sayings. I keep them before my eyes, for they are life unto me, for I have found them, and their health to all my flesh. Amen. God bless you folks. Come on back and be with us for a 6 o'clock prayer meeting tonight if you can.